You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, dedicated to cultivating a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. Okay, so I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to start by telling everybody that sin, sin is, is very real. Sin is a very real thing, okay? Uh, I have done my fair share of getting in the way of what God intends uh, for God's world, okay? I've, I've done my fair share of getting in the way of the peace that God intends for this world. That's the way I define sin. Uh, anything we do to get in the way of the peace that God intends for this world. And my guess is I'm not alone, right? You guys have done your fair share of sinning as well. Can I get an amen? Yes, all right. You guys have done your fair share of getting in the way of the peace that God intends too. I mean, I, if you're like me, then you've lied, you've cheated, you've used your privilege to your benefit, You've hurt others, you have physically hurt others, you have maybe even dabbled in things you know you shouldn't be dabbling in because they hurt your body. All those things are possibly true. I have done those things. Now, um, I focused a lot on me because there is personal sin. I think we focus on personal sin quite a bit, but I think there's other types of sin too. I think uh, there is communal sin. How many people have heard of communal sin before? The sin of the community couple people. Um, a good example of this would be uh, Georgetown University right now. They're working to, uh, um, to make reparations to their black alumni because what they recognized is that a couple hundred years ago they were complicit in slave trade. And so they were like, you know, we need to make this right. That was a communal sin that we're working to restore and repair. Okay, that's something that communal sin looks like. Uh, there's cultural sin. Sin very specific to our culture, specific to even like New York. Um, one funny story that I feel like I've told you guys, I can't remember. I have a pastor friend named Stan Mitchell, and he went to Kenya. And, uh, and this pastor that in Kenya was like, hey, come pray with me at this family's house. So he goes to the family's house, and the wife opens up the door, and she's, she's topless, right? And so Stan is like, dude, the pastor's having an affair with the, the, the wife at this house. Like, this is messed up. And the, and the, the woman who answers the door who's topless goes, Oh, the pastor's here. Somebody run and grab my covering for me. Run and grab my covering. And so they ran and they grabbed the covering, and she puts it on her head. She's like, I'm ready to pray. <laughs> and it shows you in some cultures they think sin is not covering your head when you pray. So, I mean, like, you know, I'm glad you got that. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, that's a cultural experience. That's a cultural, cultural sin, right, not covering your head when you were to pray. Um, but, but I think what we do, and I think what American Christianity with a giant C has taught us to do over the past hundred years or so is focus solely on our personal sin, which, by the way, like I said, we all have our personal sin. We all have our issues. We all have the ways we're broken. It's taught us um, that, that uh, um, if we focus on our personal sin, the personal sin is the thing that's going to stop us from being killed. At least that's the way that I say it. If you have personal sin, there's a chance you are going to die be sent into torment, and your personal sin, if you get it under control, and if you believe the right things, will stop you from being killed. Now, I would say, uh, I'm being a little bit, uh, oh, I don't know, what's the word? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm being that. <laughs> but but uh, regardless, I would say in our narrative, our narrative says that sin equals death. Sin equals separation from God, and if it stays that way, we're going to go to hell. And right? I think that would be a pretty, pretty popularized thing to say in American Christianity. Um, and you know what, if you would have asked me about three or four years ago what I believe, I would have told you I believe exactly that. Um, but like everything else with this Forefront Is series, I've been on a bit of a journey over the past years, okay? The past four, five, six years. And, and so just like we talked about uh, how we're an interdenominational church that uh, wants to be just and generous, and sometimes that means we're progressive, and, and just like I talked about Scripture, and I said how in order for me to see Scripture as the true inspired Word of God, there are some things I had to throw away, um, there's a journey that I've been on with sin, and with sin, um, 
um, I, I believe it in it deeply and I believe our church if we're going to become a spiritually mature church needs to start walking away from some of the sin that we see going on in our community that being said I think I look at it differently than the American church looks at it for the most part and I think it's a good thing I think it's good news I think it holds us accountable so I'm going to get to that uh, one thing that I did not do last week who was here last week okay last week I started in this whole scripture thing and I, I failed to mention to you guys that this has been like seven, eight, nine years of study and praying and reading and all the rest and talking to other people. I just sort of gave 28 minutes of what I thought. And you're all like, what? I've never heard that before. Um, same thing with this. Seven, eight years of, of reading and listening and talking and praying and thinking through this. And so what I give you today in 28 minutes is going to be the beginning, okay? It's not the end of the journey. You're allowed to be like, no, I don't agree. And you're allowed to be like, let's talk more about this. So... I want to encourage you to do that, just like we always say unity and not uniformity, just like we always say uh, better questions and right answers right now. Let this be the beginning of the journey. And finally, you have those little sheets of paper there, right? We've gotten some really great questions. We're going to answer your questions on October 9th. And so while I'm speaking, if there's something that comes to mind, anything that comes to mind, write it down on that piece of paper. We're going to collect them in those baskets sitting up there by the offering or by the uh, communion. And on October 9th, we're going to answer as many of these questions as we can. So, like I said, we've been getting some really, really good ones. I'm pretty happy with that. But what we need to do is we need to go back to the beginning uh, of Scripture in order to see um, this sin journey that I've been on and, and, and to do what I hope um, gives our church some clarity on what sin looks like here. Okay? So everybody go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, and more specifically, Genesis chapter 2, 15. Uh, and when we say back to the beginning, the truth of the matter is that Genesis isn't actually the beginning. Genesis was probably written around the time uh, that Israelites were in exile, so they were enslaved by the Babylonian Empire. And so what we have to do is we have to remember that it was written for a people who had been slaughtered, they'd been kidnapped, they'd been starved, they'd been enslaved, they'd been broken, they'd been hurt, they've suffered a lot of pain, and, and they're writing the book of Genesis. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, hey, we have this amazing, infinite and unimaginable God that can create the heavens and the earth, but we're also sitting here in this place and it feels like death to us. How do we make sense of how we got to this place? How do we make sense into how we got to this present condition. We need to, um, to talk about this, to tell a story about this, to write a poem about this. That's what they did. They wrote a poem that they passed around to one another in exile, and it was called Genesis. Okay? And so I'm going to skip over creation. Creation's amazing, um, but I'm going to skip over it. Uh, and I'm going to run to uh, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. I'm going to start with Adam and Eve, okay? The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, last week, uh, if you were here, I said sometimes it's not helpful to take the Bible literally, right? Uh, it, it, you will certainly die. <clears throat> this might be one of those experiences. This is also one of those experiences where I really wish, like, God could have shown us, like, emojis way earlier. Like, you know, or something. Like, give us some context in which this word die is used. Is it, like, die with, like, a, you know, like, the very scary face? Is it die with, like, the sort of, like, just straight line? Like, think about that. Like, what was, what was God trying to say? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. And, and I can only go by, by what I'm reading. But the one thing I do know is I do know that when the Israelites are, are, are writing this, 
They're not writing it thinking, you know what we're writing? Sophisticated theological doctrine for the 20th and 21st century. They're not doing that. Again, they're trying to figure out why they have the present condition that they have, okay? And so we have to look at this more like a uh, Elliot Smith song or a Sylvia Plath novel or something like that. Uh, look those people up if you don't know who they are. They're, they're good. Um, and so he says, you'll surely die. And we, we get stuck on this word die. Here's what it says. The, uh, we're going to keep going. The woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And then the snake says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. Uh, she took some of it and ate it. She, she also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, so uh, we know that there's no immediate death, right? They don't die right away. But now comes the part where we can talk about sin. Uh, because in American Christianity, we have done uh, some nice work on creating a theological idea of what sin and salvation looks like based on this passage. Okay, so what we've basically said is that sin, which is the, the act of disobeying God, which, you know, I would agree that, you know, getting in the way of the peace that God wants is dis disobedience towards God. That sin now separates you from God. God is over here. And your sin is over here. And I will go as far as to say God can't stand the sight of you. God struggles with you. God doesn't really like you. Good thing we have Jesus because if it wasn't for Jesus, you would die. Okay? You would be, go to hell. You'd be in torment. And so I think what we've created, and I've tried to sum summarize this, I think we've said something to the effect of sin is that which qualifies a person for God's separation and judgment. And God's judgment is God's punitive action whereby sinners are sent to hell. So from this story, we've created this idea of sin and separation. Now, here's the issue with sin and separation. Number one, it tells us that our creator, our infinite and unimaginable creator, can't stand what, what God created. That to me has always been an issue. When I, leave, when I left Christianity for seven years, that was one of the biggest reasons I left. How does something that created me, that loves me, want to stay as far away from me as possible? I don't get that doesn't make much sense. We've done that. We've created the idea that God is separate from us now, that God is no longer with us. I think the second thing we've done when it comes to looking at sin this way is I think we have put the focus on those personal sins more than anything else. What am I doing? Am I good enough? Am I treating people right? Are my actions the best? Yeah, there's kids in Aleppo, and yeah, uh, there's black people getting shot by police officers, but really, how is my life look? Okay, what does my life look like? And so the focus is solely on us and on our relationship, okay? And then what I think the third thing it does is I think the third thing, it creates an idea of right thinking. If sin is separation from God and I got to get back to God, well, then I have to think the right way, which means I need to believe the right way. I need to read the Bible the right way. I need to pray the right way. I need to make sure I say that sinner's prayer seven, eight, eleven times, whatever it might be. You know, I need to make sure that when I see other people, that I, ha I make sure they have their doctrine done the right way. I need to make sure it all looks exactly the way it's supposed to look because there's a chance that death is around the corner. I'm separate from God. And as being separate from God, there's a chance that I'm going to die unless I get this right. Unless God, through Jesus Christ, changes God's mind about me. But God won't change God's mind about me through Christ unless I believe the right way. I got a note from one of you, uh, one of the things, and I was reading it on Monday, and it said, um, it said, I love what Forefront is talking about, but I'm scared. 
And I was like, yeah, yeah. I, w- I was scared too when I first started talking about this because in this idea of theology, if, 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 you know, if you're a sinner and God's judgment is hell, well then us thinking or reading or doing the wrong thing sends us to an eternal torment. It sends us to death. Of course we'd be afraid about it. Of course that would freak us out. And yet, I think with this, we miss this giant, huge, big point. Um, and I, I can't believe we missed this. Like, I, I feel like I've missed it my entire life up until a little while ago. But it's Genesis 3, 8 to 11, okay? And this is what it said. This is after they've sinned. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. As he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called the man, where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, who told you that you were naked? you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What I think is interesting, the point that we forget, we sort of skip over this piece, right? Because after this comes all the other stuff, like you're going to have labor pains and you're going to toil in the dirt and the dust and you're going to, uh, you know, have to do the harvest this way or that way. Like we, we sort of skip this part. But the biggest thing in this poem, remember, these, these are people who are trying to figure out suffering. They're trying to figure out pain. They're trying to figure out why the present condition is the way it is. And when they're hiding, God's not separate. What's God doing? He's looking for them. God is looking for them. You sinned. Where are you? I'm looking for you. My beloved, my creation, I'm looking for you. Where are you? Hey, my creation, come back to me. I'm not over here separate from you. I know you sinned. But where, what, what's going on? And they're saying, we're, we're hiding because we're afraid. Well, why are you, why are you afraid? Because we're naked. Well, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? I was si- uh, my daughter was six. She came up from school one day, and she said, Dad, my legs are so ugly. That's what she said. And I said, what? What are you talking about? She said, Dad, <laughs> they have little black hairs all over them. They're so ugly. Um, and, and I said, sweetheart, who told you that? Like, who told you that your legs are ugly? And she said, some kids, they said the black hair on my legs is ugly. I hate my legs. They're terrible. And I was like, my heart broke. Who told you that? Who told you you were naked? That's how I hear God saying it. And with my daughter, I was heartbroken. I wasn't heartbroken because, you know, yeah, someone said her legs are ugly, and that's tough. And she's half Indian, so yeah, the hair on her legs is a little dark. But, you know, like, I was more upset because it was like a loss of innocence. It was a loss of something. There was a loss of her uh, being secure about who she was, a loss of her being secure about her body. Uh, it was a loss of honesty. She, she finally understood that there are cruel people out there in the world who are going to say some really nasty things. And my guess is, knowing my daughter, is that she said something back to them. So now that she, she knows what it feels like to be vindictive and to hurt others, right? And you know what that feels like to me? That feels like death. That feels like a bunch of little deaths. You will die. You will lose your innocence. You will understand cruelty. You will feel broken. You will feel pain. You're going to feel separation. And they're all little deaths. And I think maybe this will get what God is getting at. You certainly will die. 
Every time that that parent has to go to jail during their child's formative years, there's a bit of a death. You certainly will die. Every time that there's adultery or someone gets caught cheating and, and there's, there's tons of people who are hurt on either side, you certainly will die. Every time that you are broken and suffering, you, know, you certainly will die. There's a thousand little deaths that come just from our brokenness. Maybe it's thinking that you're beautiful and that you have no body issues and all of a sudden somebody tells you your legs are ugly for no good reason. There's a little death. And by the way, when they say we were naked and so we hid, I absolutely believe what's trying to happen here is everybody's trying to make sense of the fact you know, that we, we all, throughout humanity, have incredible body issues. Every diet we've ever been on, every time we ever shut off the lights, every time we pull up the covers to our chin because we're embarrassed, like, they're little deaths. Like, we're taught that our bodies aren't good. They're little deaths, and I think that's what that's getting at. God is saying, who told you? My heart breaks for you. I'm not separate from you. I'm not over here, and you're over here, and we have the cross in the middle that makes me feel better. Right, do you guys remember that little thing? I wish I could have drawn it out. I'm here with you, and I'm standing over here, and I'm saying to you, stop hiding. Stop hiding. You're still my beloved. Stop hiding. I still love you. Who told you this is going to happen? It's pain. And then what I hear God saying is I hear God going, I hear God going, you know, how do, I want, how do I let them know that their sin does not separate me from them? How do I let them know that, yes, their sin's destructive, but how do I let them know that I'm still with them? They're, they're still my beloved. I know I'm going to walk with them as Jesus incarnate. You want to talk about not separating yourself? Let me walk with you as Jesus incarnate, and I walk with you in the suffering. I walk with you in the pain. I walk with you in the cruelty. And, and, and how do I show them that I love them, that they're my beloved, in such a way that, that, that I can actually, you know, show them that I'll, that I'll never leave them? I got it. I'm going to sacrifice for them. Not only am I not going to separate myself from them, I'm going to sacrifice for them. I'm going to die so they can see that the deaths that they face are the same ones that I face. And how can I show them that I'll never leave them again, that I'm not separate and I'm not going anywhere, that I want nothing more for with them to partner with me in the beauty that I want for this place. I got it. I'm going to be resurrected. And in my resurrection, I will never leave again. It's a different way of looking at sin. It's a different way of looking at salvation. We've talked about sin as being that which qualifies God to separate himself from us. Judgment. We've talked about the punishment is, is an act where sinners are sent away to die, to torment I like to rephrase it. Here's the way I want to rephrase it. Sin is that which opposes God's loving desire for all creation. And God's judgment, that's God's restorative justice in action, which includes exposing and naming sin as sin, calling people to repentance and transformation and setting things right. What do I mean by that? God's judgment is going, hey, you know what? You're not bringing the peace that I intended. Stop it. Because you're my beloved, because I love you so much, because I want to partner with you, your growth, your spiritual maturity matters. Now, get, get it right. Let's repent. Let's change our minds. And let's get moving so that we can bring peace to this place. That's what I hear God saying. You're my beloved. I'm not going to leave you. But I do want you to partner with me. Will you partner with me? And it's going to change the baseline on the way that we look at sin. So name your hot topic sins, your hot button sins, the ones we all grew up with. Oh, uh, it's either this way or that way. Remember last week I said the Bible wasn't an ethical rule book, but I said the Bible can show us how to live ethically. Do you remember that? So Bible as an ethical rule book says, don't drink, you go to hell. Or don't drink, you're good. Do drink, you go to hell. I mean, I was brought up believing that. I went to a really conservative church. And so we have to sort of erase that black and white rule book thing. So now it goes, okay, well, what's bringing the peace that God intended? 
Is it possible that I could walk into a bar, have a beer with somebody, and bring the peace that God intended? Is that possible? Yes, I've seen it happen before. Is it also possible that someone drinks too much, makes a really stupid decision that hurts themselves and somebody else? Is that possible? Yes. So now it's not just this black and white baseline. Now we're saying everything we do, we have to ask ourselves, is this bringing the peace that God intended? Is that what it's doing? How about cursing? I had somebody who goes to our church, and I love them. God bless them. I've, I've used this story like twice now. Um, and they were like, I am an actor, and I have to curse in this play, and I have to say a really bad curse word. And I was like, okay. And they were like, but it's the really bad one, and I don't want God to get mad at me. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, tell me more about the play. Is it a play filled with redemption? She goes, oh, absolutely. And I go, is it filled with you know people who you know are are learning to love again, and are, are, is there grace in the play? And she goes, yes, it's an amazing play. And I'm like, is the play, does it show you, uh, does it allow you to use your God-given gifts? And she goes, yeah. And I go, well, maybe God wants you to say that curse word because there's better things that are going to come from it. Maybe that's restoring what God intends. Now, on the other hand, we've been at this church. I have been at this church, and I've heard people out there greeting. And I'm just going to call him Jonathan, okay? Uh, I've heard Jonathan out there greeting, and I've heard Jonathan use a curse word. And while visitors are coming in, and I've seen visitors audibly go, like, this is church. That does not help, right? That does not bring the peace that God intends. And so what you have, or you have no longer, it's this way or it's this way. It's what am I doing? What am I doing in my life that brings the peace that God intends to this world? How am I partnering with God? That's the kind of maturity we're looking for. That's what we're looking for when we talk about sin. Sin is disrupting what God intends, and restoration says, how do I partner with God to restore the disruption I've made? Now, I'm going to get a little deeper, all right? If we're looking at sin this way, we can no longer make it personal or just personal, okay? There's got to be other parts to it. There's got to be other ways. If we are in the 10% and we look at the 90% and say the 90% aren't working as hard as they should be, you know what? That's, we're part of you know, cultural and communal sin, okay? We're not helping that situation. If, um, if we see someone like Terrence Crutcher who is shot and we do nothing about it, Okay, and we sit there and we go, well, maybe all lives matter. I'm not sure. If we don't believe the people who are telling us there's a real issue here, well, then we're complicit in cultural and communal sin. Okay, that's what's happening. If, if we talk about, you know, a domestic assault and yet continue to practice like all the misogynistic jokes, us guys as idiots practice with our friends, well, we're complicit in cultural and communal sin. Okay, so now it's not just about us, about what we think, what we believe we do. Now it's about the big picture. How are we restoring all of what God has? It's a shift. I'm going to give you a little illustration to help with the shift. Um, it's a baseball illustration. I hope that's okay. There's this player. His name is uh, Yasiel Puig, and he plays for the Los Angeles Dodgers, right? And uh, it's widely known that his teammates don't like him, okay? Widely known. In fact, his teammates don't like him uh, to the point where he got sent to the minor leagues, so that, to get him away from his teammates. That's pretty bad, right? Now, the thing with Yasiel Puig is he's a really good baseball player. He's, like, really good. And the reason his teammates don't like him are for this. They don't like him because he would come into the dugout and he would go, amazing game today. I hit two home runs and made a beautiful catch. And his teammates would go, but we lost. We lost the game. And he would go, doesn't matter. Two home runs, beautiful catch. And his teammates were like, you missed the point. That's what American Christianity has done. I read my Bible the right way. I pray the right way. 
I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm for this, I'm for that doctrine. And everybody's going, but look at the world around you. What are you doing to bring peace to it? I'm good. I'm not sinning. That's what we've done with the old style, the old way. At some point, we have to switch it up, and, and not only do we have to be good, because I mean, you've got to be good to play in the major leagues, right? You have to be good. You have to be willing to do this, but you also have to see the bigger picture. You have to be wanting to win the ball game. So, so we're sitting there. We're going, you know what? I am. I'm, I'm spiritually mature. I'm working to restore the places where I've, uh, I've hurt peace, and I'm working to restore that, but I also am looking at the bigger picture. No, there's something much bigger that I'm a part of, that God wants me to be uh, a, big, uh, a part of this thing that's much bigger, wants me to be a part of the communal restoration, the cultural restoration, the universal restoration, and so I see that too, and that matters too, and here's the thing about those, this idea of sin. It is way harder. It is way harder to see sin this way. It's much easier to, to have your little checklist, right? It's much easier to say, I believe this, that doctrine's right, I act nice, I do. It's much harder to go, all right, I gotta restore peace, and now I have to help everybody else restore peace too. But I think it's incredible news. And here's why I think it's incredible news. I think it's incredible news because our God isn't sitting there going, you know what? I can't stand the side of you. I can't stand this idea, and so I'm over here, I'm separate from you, and thank God there's Jesus, because Jesus changed my mind about you. Otherwise, I thought you sucked. No. What God is saying is you are broken, and you are imperfect, and you are a mess. And I'm bringing Jesus on the cross through salvation to show you that you have never been separate from me. You are my beloved, and as my beloved, I give you the big task the beautiful task of not only maturing yourself, but bringing peace to the rest of this place, culturally, communally, universally. That's how much I love you. I want to give you all of that. That is good news. That's the good news of our church. That's why I say let's live thankfully. Let's live thankfully that we're not sitting here saying, you know what, I don't care about those kids in Aleppo. I don't care about Black Lives Matter movement. I don't care about anything else that's happening in New York. I care about what's going on with you. Um, checklist, what have you been doing right? What have you been doing wrong? Have you prayed the right way? Have you done this? I could care less. Well, not true. I could sort of care less. It's not the only thing I care about. But now I'm going to church. As we mature, as we get better, God's still with us. God's present in us through Jesus Christ. Let's go bring that out to Atlantic Antic. Let's go bring it out to New York City. Let's go bring it out to America. Let's bring it beyond. That's what I want for this church. I want us to see this as good. Amen.